It's Monday, May 2nd. You're watching Market Call. That's MKT Call. No guy Dami here. I am Dan Nathan, but you know what? I have a pretty good replacement here. You know Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. He shows up with us every Monday on Market Call. He's going to do some heavy duty, heavy lifting with us here today in Guy's absence. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And this show, Market Call, is powered by Open Exchange. You can find them at Open Exchange TV on Twitter. Give them a follow. Carter, What's, What's going up? on, man? How are you, bud? As they say, absent makes the heart grow fonder. It makes guy even more desirable uh, <laughs> when he comes back, right? That's if you, didn't think, if you didn't think that was possible to make <laughs> guy more desirable here, man. You know, I appreciate having you here. You know, I say this all the time. You're obviously a maestro on the charts here, but you're also, I think, a brilliant market mind. You are a market historian here. You and I have traded through now. It feels like a couple cycles since we first met back in 09. But I will tell you this, before we met in 09, I was following your work, your institutional work, and we're going to get to more about that later with your new offering from Worth Charting, which I get every morning and I think every viewer of Market Call should take a look at here. Let's talk about the month that was. That was April. April comes, she will. And she came and went. It was a bomb. You know, here's a little thing here. We started Market Call on the first day of April talking about the seasonal performance over the last 16 years, Carter, 15 mm-hmm. Aprils have been higher. Well, right. we, we kind of blew that out here. If we look at, you know, that was how it started. Here's how it's going, man. The NASDAQ, you know, was just a disaster here. The S&P was down 9% on the month. It was one of the worst months in the S&P 500 in many years. It was the worst month in the NASDAQ going back to October of 2008. Carter, what was going on in October of 2008? Did you think there would be a market left after we got through that month in October of 2008. Right. Well, a couple of things. I mean, 2008, if you think about it, there's a thing that I learned early on that, that weakness is the precondition for weakness, yeah. or in fact, weakness is the precondition for shocking weakness. So let's think about that period. If the market peaked essentially in October of 07, and then in the first week of October of eight, one year later, it was down 30%. And then what happened? We came in, it was the 6th of October, and we dropped 23% in one week, meaning- yeah. The temptation to think it's overdone, it's oversold. The market was already down 30, and then it comes in and opens up and drops another 23. Guess what happened in 1987? The market was already down 17% on that Friday, October 16th. And then that bloody Monday, Black Monday, it dropped 23% that week. Meaning the thought is that something's really, really steep and uncorrected, and then you get weakness. It's the exact opposite. Real shocking weakness, it comes from something that's already starting to weaken. Whereas the expression where there's blood in the water. Yeah. Well, you know, that also brings me back to a 2000, you know, they call it the dot com crash, right? Because in May of 2000 or March of 2000, excuse me, you know, the market topped out. And at the time, no one thought that was it. I mean, for the most part, everyone knew that there was an equity bubble there, but no one thought that we were going to have a multi-year drop the way they did with the NASDAQ loss. Did the NASDAQ lose close to 85% of its value, Carter? I mean, which is truly astounding in a way when you think about how different the NASDAQ is now versus to the 
the way it was back then. But it wasn't a crash. It wasn't like Black Monday in 87 or anything like that. It was just a slow-moving train wreck. It was a lot of one step forward and two or three back. And that went on for years. And I think that's what's really been different about since the financial crisis and this kind of age of QE, if you will, is that you know we basically have much shorter bear markets when we do have those peak-to-drop declines. And I think people forget just how long it was in the dot-com aftermath and then in the financial crisis aftermath from the highs. I mean, it took at least a year. It took two years to to bottom out in 2002, and then it took more than a year and a half. All right, well, Carter, let's talk about this because, you know, our main man, Carl Quintanilla from CNBC, he is a prolific tweeter, as you know. He was talking about a note from Mike Wilson, a friend of ours, clearly, he comes on Fast Money all the time, and I've known Mike for many years. Mike was my tech salesman in the late 90s when I was at a hedge fund. He's a brilliant market mind also, but he thinks the S&P has a minimum downside to 3,800 and maybe as low as 3,460. Talk to me a little bit. You kind of intrigued Guy and me uh, maybe a week or so ago. You brought on some charts. You were inverting the charts. You were basically saying, listen, if you were looking at this chart, I think we'd all agree we want to buy it. But you kind of gave us the opposite of some important market chart. Talk to us about the spy here. You, you brought an inverted chart, yeah. and then you brought it the right way. That's right. And so, you know, there is this – a lot of people don't believe in that, which is fine. You know, they can do what they want, Qs and Ks <laughs> and price to book, enterprise value the EBITDA. The truth is you can do all sorts of things, but here's the thing. One of people say, what if I flip the chart upside down? People would say to me when I was 25, I'm 55. I'd say, all right, so let's do that. What does this say? This is simply the, the market. Now let's go back and forth, back and forth, toggle. I mean, the point is, there's a message. If you didn't know what it was, let's go to the inverted chart. And someone said, I want to tell you about this tech stock, the software starting to bottom, or this industrial or metal or miner that's coming to life. You'd look at that and you say, I got to get some of that. I have to buy this. This is the definition of a bottom, a base, what I would call a bearish to bullish reversal. Well, guess what? That's exactly what it is, except it's been inverted. Look at the proper chart. It's a bullish to bearish reversal, something that was in a bull phase that is clearly rolled over. Now, how low can it go? You know, targets are mercurial. Sure, lower than 3,800, as Mike Wilson said. That's all fair game. I mean, the truth is there are unfilled gaps below, and there's still a lot of love for equities, despite the day-to-day thinking that it's oversold. Many, many people have yet yeah. to sell a single share of Apple, yeah. a single share of Google, and presumptively, that's what's coming. Yeah, well, let's do this. Let's keep this chart up here for a second. And I want the viewer to go back and look at September of 2020. And I want them to look at that, really, that just that steady rise up until that intraday reversal. You remember the day. I remember the day. It was September 1st. August was like gangbusters. And then we had September open and it looked like it was off to the races, intraday reversal. And the S&P went down more than 10% over the next three weeks or so. Really a nothing other than a change in sentiment. Do you remember that? It was really nothing other than that. And it was the major names in the NASDAQ and the S&P that led to the downside. Now, here's the thing. You see that chop. We went down 10%. We had a huge rally. Then we went back. We didn't make a new low. When I look at the chart now, okay, so now go move all the way over to the right here where we are right now, I'm seeing some similar sort of chop, Carter, okay, in the S&P 500. And we know that the NASDAQ and the S&P just went down precipitously. NASDAQ down 9% in the month of April and the NASDAQ 13%. Could we be setting up? Now, here's the difference. We just made a new low. We are below those prior lows. Is that what's different about this kind of action right now? Well, a couple of things. One, we're just so much higher in the level of the index now as we were then. Yeah. Two, 
we were still in an uptrend then, as defined. That's the point of a moving average. As opposed to one week or one price or one day, you smooth it out. That's why I call it the smoothing mechanism. 100 moving average was still rising then. And then three, the point you make is that when it sold off in October, it didn't make a new low. We have a clear sequence of a new low. And it's not just the SPY, it's the Russell, it's the yeah. NASDAQ, and that is the issue. Yeah. All right. Let's look at the QQQ, the ETF, the tracks, the NASDAQ 100. We know those top six names make up more than 40% of the weight here. This is my chart. My charts don't look as good as your charts. They're both on fact set, so they all look great. And the content is great, but you draw better lines than I do. Look what I did right here. Here we are. We know that the NASDAQ 100, we know that the QQQ is down 21.5% on the year. So by some definitions, we are in a bear market here. Look at that level in which I drew some support. And what did I try to do there, Carl? is I drew that high point in September 1st, 2020. And then that kind of low, if you look at the resistance level that we have, and then that low from early in 2021, it seems like we kind of have to go back and test those levels back towards, I don't know, just below 300 or so. But then where is the next level of support? Because to your point, if you were an investor and you haven't sold any Apple or you know Microsoft yet, they're selling Google and they're selling Amazon and they sold Netflix. I know that Facebook, and we're gonna talk about that in a little bit, is bouncing here a little bit, but man, if you wanna to get to those other ones and throw Tesla in there too, there's a lot more downside in the NASDAQ or the QQQ because all of those dozens of names that make up the rest of the not major names, they're just not gonna move the needle on this index. That's right. The levels are very important as you drew them. I think the key thing is if you go to that September 1st, uh, 2021 spike high, from which the market dropped very sharply, that ascent from the actual COVID low to that spike high, at that point, Apple itself was trading farther above its 150 moving at any time in some 15, 20 years, meaning you had this excess in those names. And What's happened since, of course, is we're giving that all back. In terms of where there is support, that's a little bit of support where those lines are drawn. But to your point, which you implied, there isn't a lot of support there. and, And that's the real risk, that we unwind more of the excess of the preceding two years. All right. Talk to me a little bit about real quickly. We don't have the chart of this, but I'm just curious about the psychology of this is like, you know, Apple is now below its 150 day moving average. It was below it a little bit in March. It was hasn't been below it, I think, since last spring or so. It had a V reversal back in March when it was below it and had a rip. It went from 150 to 180 in like two weeks in a straight line, which was just absolutely insane. When you see a stock like Apple, the largest one in the market here, now below all of its major moving averages, and we know that it's kind of like one of the last generals here of this whole little move. What does that mean below the 200, the 150, whatever you look at? I know you look at the 150. I'm just curious how you think about that. It's on a critical trend line. And and the the issue is there's always going to be somebody that holds out until it doesn't. So and this will get to ultimately not only sizing, but whether one's ultimately going and doing something contrarian. Do you stay with those that are acting relatively well, which is what Apple's doing, certainly compared to Amazon or yeah. Facebook or Netflix, but actually better than Microsoft or Google? Or do you take the exact opposite interpretation and say, wait a minute, this is just the next shoe to drop, and therefore I don't want to? Either approach is valid. My own hunch is that what's going to happen here is that it's the next shoe to drop. And that I'd rather go to something that's already bombed out or been re-rated lower to such an extent that perhaps the real carnage is out of the way. Yeah. 
And speaking of next shoe to drop, this is a, this is a shoe that dropped a long time ago. The Russell 2000, the IWM that tracks a small cap index. Talk to us a little bit about this because there was a time last year where Apple's market cap was greater than that of the Russell 2000. So 2000 small cap stocks, one stock, Apple, the largest in the market, made up more market cap than that index. And, you know, one of the things that we kept on pointing out is just kind of Russell 2000, the sensitivity of small caps to rising interest rates, that sort of thing. The sideways action all of last year and then that kind of quick breakout, but then they just kind of come back in and then break down. What are small cap stocks saying to you about overall the market here? Well, the interesting thing is this, that we had talked about barbells. So right now, the Russell 2000 is down 24%. Guess what else is down exactly 24? The NASDAQ 100. Yeah. So we're this is where it's particularly unhappy. You're getting the most extreme weakness from the small and from the super cap. It's the S&P that's down, let's say, a mere 16, right? So think 24% to the top 100 and the top half of those are just the big five and 24% for the smallest, lowest quality balance sheets. And there's a real message there. And look at the chart. It has all the hallmarks of something that's rolled over, or if you flip it upside down, inverted, something that's bottoming. And all suggestions are it works lower. Yeah. No, and again, I mean, I think that we were spending some time on the Russell 2000 last fall because you had that long, you know, consolidation, that breakout. Maybe it felt like, okay, we're going to come out of COVID here. We don't see any of the global geopolitical stuff happening here. Maybe the market and the economy can deal with higher rates, right? Because that's what the Fed has to do. Well, that's been clearly just not the case here. And it really feels like you're going to get a move back towards that kind of 160 level, which would be at least another 10% or so, which would be a bit of a mess if you think about that. All right. Speaking of a mess, you saw that ISM gauge this morning, U.S. factory activity unexpectedly fell to 55.4. Last month, it was 57.1. The expectation was 57.4. This is the lowest reading since 2020. And then here's another thing. And, you know, Guy, if he were here, he'd be talking about bond market volatility. He's said it on numerous occasions. He thinks it's broken. He thinks that the Fed has kind of lost control of what they've needed to do here. And I'm just curious, because this is the week. Tomorrow, the Fed's going to start their two-day meeting. We know that the Fed funds is pricing in nearly 100% probability that they're going to raise 50 basis points. The last time the Fed had raised 50 basis points was May of 2000, Carter. And going back to the start of this conversation at the time when the Fed was raising in May of 2000, they were doing so because they thought the economy was on good footing, but they were trying to tamp down an asset bubble. They had no idea the economy was about to go into recession. And let me tell you this, we know from last week, the data that we got on GDP, we're already halfway there. If the, if the readings were to accelerate, here as we're in Q2 and we were to get to another consecutive quarter of contraction in GDP, we have a recession. Now, that doesn't mean anything other than the psyche of investors, right, and maybe consumer confidence and a whole host of other things. And maybe if we were to see the stock market and housing go the opposite way, all of a sudden you have this really bad spiral, negative wealth effect, and the markets really just, you know, the only way they deal with that the last two times that I've been in these situations is they go lower for longer. They do. I mean, you know, there's a sort of simple, you're, everything's tied to the risk free rate of return. And at some point, if the cost of capital, whether outright or sort of induced here, which affects all valuation models, continues to rise, and especially if it's rising when things are starting to cool off, and that is the real risk, that you do have this problem with commodities, you have 
interest rates that are going the wrong way as the economy is prospectively rolling over, you get yourself in a, in a real trouble. And then this is something else, and there's no way around this. The whole assigning of multiples to an asset, to an equity asset, it is the grayest area in all math. Should something be 22 times or 24? How about 18? But the thing is, when you drop from 24 times to 18, you take a world of pain in the stock you own. Yeah. And things get very cheap, and that doesn't mean anything. They can get cheaper. It's a very precarious time, and risk aversion is the proper approach. Yeah, so this next chart's really interesting here. I just saw a headline go across my fact set screen here saying that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, yield top 3% for the first time since December 2018. And I don't know where you were. Actually, I do know where you were. You and I were probably sitting next to each other on the set of Options Action or Fast Money talking about the precipitous drop in the stock market when we saw yields in the 10-year get above 3%. The Fed was on autopilot. They're raising interest rates. They're trying to normalize it. The moment that we had a gross scare, you know what I mean? The stock market went down and it went down nearly 20% in a straight line. And you can see that in this chart back in 2018. And then the Fed, what did they do? They pivoted and rates continue to go lower. The stock market raged until we had the pandemic, which was clearly a black swan event. What did they do again? They got even more dovish and they flooded the zone, right? With monetary stimulus and we had fiscal stimulus and you saw what happened to the stock market. Look all the way to the right though. And you see this 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 move in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. I mean, we started this year, Carter, below 1.5%. We doubled it up to 3%, which historically is a massive move. And now the stock market, the S&P, is down nearly 14%. So, I, I mean, how important is looking at a chart like this to you, kind of giving some near-term history on rates and how it's really affected the stock market? Well, again, one of the things about where you start the meter, where one starts the story, right? So you can take a chart like this, and then the sort of inverse relationship that you see in different timeframes is not quite as clear as it is here. Yeah. But the message, the important message is, is that the cost of capital and how growth assets are valued, there is an inverse relationship. And what we do also know, and, and there's no way around this either, is that the only way an individual stock or a basket of stocks, the S&P 500 or any index, goes higher is you have to have earnings growth or multiple expansion, or some combination of the two. And in this current environment, this is not likely a time where multiples expand and no. earnings growth is in question. Those two things, therefore, it's almost if-then statement in math. If that's the case, then it's highly likely, at a minimum, that stocks go, go higher, which means the risk is that they go lower. Yeah. And listen, we're gonna, you and I, we're going to put a bow on this conversation about one minute after we look at the two-year yield over two different time frames, because I really want the listener or the viewer to get a sense for what we think is going to happen in the near term here and kind of how we're playing it here. But let's look at this two-year note. And this is the thing that I think a lot of investors or traders or market participants in general, like this is the thing that kind of indicates where they think Fed funds is going, right? And so we know that Fed funds, they just raised 25 basis points at their last meeting. They said they're going to do 50 Fed Chair Powell in April, beginning of April, which started a lot of this downward volatility, said they're going to hit it hard, right? They want to get inflation under control. So you might see multiple 50 basis point hikes in the Fed funds. Well, look where the two-year note is, right? It's at 2.8 or so here. We see where it topped out back in 2018 at 3%. It was not far away from where the 10-year is, okay? So look at that move. You see what's going on. The Fed clearly got serious about battling inflation. And 
then I just want to go on the two-year. This is a log chart going back to the mid-90s here, Carter. What does that trend line tell you, especially as we've come from basically zero to 2.8% in the two-year in you know a year or so? Right. So it's a steep move to a trend line. And we see the same thing in the 10-year and the five-year, and it's the same across any time frame. What we know is in the case of the 10-year yield, we moved above the trend line that's identical to that seen here in the two-year, whereas the two-year, we're not there. But this is important. Not a single part of the curve has taken out its 2018 November highs. And so for a true sequence change, independent of the trend line, we have still, even here, a well-defined series of lower highs and lower lows. For this to have officially changed, this needs to go above three. And on the 10-year, it's got to go above 3.27. Then you would have an interruption in the 40-year sequence, which is we now have a higher high. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's let's get a, let's get through this here because you know you have been particularly bearish for the better part of this year. In the last year, there's a lot of things last year that you saw, at least on the charts, that were making you a little bit uncomfortable about the return environment and the potential for higher yields, and and then all of these kind of inflationary risk assets too. Well, here we are. The Nasdaq, like I said, is down 21 and a half percent. The S and P is down 14 percent here. Okay. We know where rates are. We just went through it. You know, what's your take here? My, you know, I, I kind of feel like we could see an S&P down 25% or so at some point from its highs in the not so distant future at some point, maybe as we get through the summer into the early fall. I think that, you know, yields probably don't go too much higher, Carter. A lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, considering the size of the Fed's balance sheet, I think that they could do some real damage if they raise rates too high too quickly. So my trade would be this summer is kind of, and I said this on a couple of occasions, once you think that we're kind of all of those metrics that you look at and put calls and this and that, whatever that, that that people look at, and they look at the AAII when they just can't get any more bearish. That's when you really start legging in with some kind of investable capital that's been on the sideline. Maybe you're fortunate to take some profits. And I think you look at the Qs. I, I've been called Qs and Twos. I think you literally buy the QQQ and the Twos because I think that you know the Nasdaq. Once you get Apple and Microsoft to participate to the downside, you get that thing down 25, 30 percent, and we're already down 21 and a half percent. That's where you start lagging into that thing. And then the other thing with treasuries, I do think at that point, when yields are that high, you're going to want to start buying treasury yields because at some point the Fed is going to have to lower here too. So that's kind of my trade. How, how low do you think the S&P and the NASDAQ, assuming that we don't have like an all out crash, it's just a good old fashioned bear market. What do you think we get to from the highs? Right. I mean, ultimately, I think it's low 3000s. And, and while that sounds crash-like, it really isn't. This is very young in terms of duration. We know the peak was January 4th, and of course, here we are just essentially May 1. And we also know that, again, we're already down. The NASDAQ 100 from its peak is down 24%. The Russell's down 24 That's a lot, but it can go further, and the S&P is not down that much. And here's the other thing. It's global, right? It's emerging stocks. It's a stock 600 in Europe. It's Chinese stocks. It's Japanese stocks. Even Canada is starting to roll a little bit. It's been a great period for equities, and there's no reason that this current sell-off should stop here. All right, so let's talk about oil here a little bit because this has basically captured you know most of our 
fascination here. We're looking at gas at the pump. We're thinking about you know burning into discretionary income. This is one of the reasons why the Fed's doing what they're doing. We know the Biden administration has tapped the, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And you see after we've had that kind of crazy volatility earlier in the year, we're kind of grinding a little bit here. We're kind of grinding here. And so to me, there's two ways to think about this chart. If it goes higher, obviously pretty inflationary, bad for the consumer. If it goes lower, it's possibly because we're in a stagflationary environment, right? Because there's less demand. Give me your take on the chart here, because this one looks like it's setting up to go one way or the other. And so the way these things work, not always, but more likely than not, is when you get into the apex of the formation, as defined, a series of lower highs and higher lows, it's almost perfectly clear bears and bulls are matched off. Something comes along to resolve it. Something fundamental, typically, meaning there's news out of Europe or news out of the war or news out of China or what have you. But the point is, you could say, well, if it's 50-50, why do anything now and wait for some message when it's getting resolved? That's a good technique. I like to try to make a bet. My bet is down, and we shall see. But I wrote jump ball in here because I think that's the true characterization of the situation. Then you place your bets and have your biases. Yeah. All right, let's talk about gold because, you know, right up until a few weeks ago when you had that breakout above that downtrend, it looked very similar to crude, Carter, right? And what's interesting about this one is, is that to my eye, to use your expression, it's still, you know, above that trend line. But those two circles that you have up there, that signifies you didn't have to draw that horizontal line almost to the exact point. It looks like a double top here. So give me your take on gold here. So the hope to draw the lines this way is to inspire the eye as it relates to crude, which is to say you get into the apex of the converging trend lines and you typically have a violent resolution. Gold was a violent move up, went right to a prior high, and now you've fallen back. So I've got some different iterations. If you look at the next chart, what this essentially is, is I've extended the line. And now let's take away the first line, the third chart, because that wedge is come and gone. This is key now. We have a well-defined trend line. We're now selling off to it, and we're selling off from what is prospectively a double top formation. It is a double top as of now. How gold behaves here at this line tells all. Well, My first things up. first, Carter, you're like a magician here because you know what? I, I almost kind of gave away the store, you know, yeah, by right. kind of <laughs> kind of leading you there. And, and I'm sorry to do that, but now I actually really see what you see in that third right. chart. It looks really heavy, and a break below that uptrend would be the first break of that uptrend since the lows in 2018. $1,200 so. an ounce, from which we yeah. almost 2100 right? Well, so right. Well, it's good. here. It's a good thing that Guy's not on for the bearish call on gold here. He might have fallen well, I think off his going, chair. I think it's going to hold the trend line. I mean, that's but that's my bias. This is I think oil's going to get resolved down, not oh, up. Oh, got it. See. All right, fair enough. There you go. So you and Guy are in the same same boat. All right, let's talk about copper relative to gold because one of the things I think it's going on right now is that we're seeing this kind of underperformance in some of these more industrial right material names, and and this this is a pretty fascinating setup, especially when you consider all the cross currents. What's going on with the dollar? What's going on with rates? What's going on with demand? Talk to me about this relationship. Right. Well, there's a long-standing relationship between what is an industrial metal that speaks to out output and growth and speculative periods and a defensive metal, right? And so this is simply a ratio. You're dividing copper by gold. And I have the inverse, which is simply gold's relative performance to copper in the next chart. And so the point of these two charts is that gold's relative performance to copper is starting to base the bottom. 
which is a very sort of negative thing for equities or a defensive thing, negative thing for the economy. Or said differently in the first chart, copper's performance is starting to roll over relative to gold. Right. Just so you know, our good friend Danny Moses, the co-host of Mining Guys on our On The Tape podcast, checking out in the podcast stores, people, he is watching right now and he just texted me and he said, good try trying to make Carter's call on gold a bearish one because Danny <laughs> has also been very bullish on gold here. Carter, all right, this morning in your worth charting email, and this was a pretty fascinating, you had this whole bit on Ford and you got to tell yeah. me, how did this come up here, man? Because yeah. I know I know you do your work over the weekends, but this was kind of epic. So Ford had results out last week. And I was just like, you know, the thing about this is that it doesn't matter what it does. This thing's been a dead duck for a long time. So look at these two lines. I mean, this is Ford Motor from April of 1987 to April to a 35-year chart. Ford is literally unch. And obviously the S&P. So one could say, yeah, but what about the dividends? Okay, so it's, it's a bond without the protection. I mean, talk about a bad investment. So another way to look at the chart is not comparative, but look at this next chart. This is actually Ford. And I've literally annotated the day. It was 8 April on the far left of the screen, 1987, $14.16. And here we are on Friday, 29th of April, 2022, 35 years later, it's $14.16. And for inflation, that's a loss of 63%. It's a disaster. And there are a lot of stocks like this. The point is, when a stock is winning, you should ride it. But when it starts to do nothing, get out. Well, Carter, it's pretty fascinating. I think you threw up on your email note on this, what the market cap was. And, and, you know, and you think about dividends, fine. Okay, investors got back. It doesn't include all of the stock that the company has bought back over that time period. It's just gone poof. It literally, they've been buying it back from you, right? From the investor. And then they basically watch it go poof, you know, like, so that's a pretty staggering sort of setup. I remember reading that about some companies like Dell, when it was taken private, it had bought and back, bought back at least the value of the take private, you know what I mean, right? In stock over that period of time. And it just shows you uh, maybe there's better uses of that capital than buying their own stock back, especially if you're a tech company. All right, let's look at this really quickly. This is from our friend, John Butters over at FactSet. This was an interesting note out that he had this morning. You know, we obviously know that Amazon had a bad quarter last quarter, but he was talking about what the S&P growth rate would have been excluding Amazon. And I think it's interesting that last week, you know, Amazon was down, what, on Friday, 13 or 14 percent after that disappointing quarter and results here. And it's down again, 3 percent. And we saw that price action, you know, in Netflix after they reported a bad number, kept on going lower. The same thing for Alphabet. Talk to me a little bit about this Amazon chart, because the stock had already sold off precipitously into the print carter. Here it was. I mean, like we went through that 2700 level that looked like maybe decent support. You would say it was probably precarious because it was the third time it was down there in three months or so. But where is the support in this thing? man? There, there isn't. And also, think if we inverted this. Yeah. Well, I'd be like, man, this thing's That's just getting out. Right? Yeah. It, it's bad. And the truth is this gets to the issue of valuation. Valuation is one of the grayest areas, the grayest science that exists. What is it worth? And so what we know is money flow matters. There's a lot of money in this stock. And there are people who are just now for the first time saying, I'm going to take some out. Yeah. So where would this pique your interest? Just I'm just saying like eyeballing it without drawing any lines yeah, on the two, chart. 2000. 
Yeah. I mean, it looks like there's an air pocket here. here here's the thing. And, and I know you don't care much about that when you're looking at the charts. I mean, this is a company that I think we can all agree is a great company and, you know, will be continuing to innovate and, and do things in and around their core retail business and gain more efficiencies. And they have the AWS and they have their ad business and they have all this stuff that's growing and has much better margins. But right now, the fundamentals, as you like to call them, they are not in favor and they are leading to the downside. You would have told us before the print that the chart was already leading to the downside and you should have your antennas up on the flip side of that carter facebook okay heading into its print last week was trading down more than 55 percent from its highs it had lost more than a half a trillion dollars in market cap since september of 2021 had a massive gap okay that gapped up 15 percent and now it's following through a little bit what's your take on this one i drew a pretty rudimentary line it was kind of the breakdown level yep. which happened to be the, the low from last year or so give me your take on this is this thing bottoming well I mean, first of all, bottoms are a process, as we see, right, in those bearish to bullish reversals. It takes a long time to bottom. It takes a long time to top. But the premise that perhaps it's better to have something like this, it's been re-rated, this Netflix, for instance, than something that has the risk of still to be re-rated, Apple or Tesla. I'd rather speculate on something that's bombed out. And as Elise shown us one day, a news-related heavy volume up thrust and gap, uh, that starts to set the lows. So yes, I'd rather do this. I'd rather Netflix. Um, and, and indeed, I, I like Netflix here compared to some of the big other that have yet to roll. All right, let's talk one last stock here before we get out of here. Expedia, they report after the, the close tonight, the implied move in the options market is about 5% in either direction. This stock has shown some really good relative strength relative to many of its peers, but also to the NASDAQ. It's down a little less than 4% on the year. I didn't even draw any lines. I just have 150-day moving average in there, Carter, which it, it is below just one or two trading days. It spent a little time over the last six months below that. I'm just curious your take on this because I think you might call it a pair of twos. Is that a good That's guess? Exactly right. I suspect you might have tried to draw some lines and couldn't figure out where to <laughs> I couldn't. Because I can't tell you where to put them either. That's the point. Sometimes you don't need lines or there are no lines to draw. What we know is it's jump ball. It does it weaken a little further? And then if it does, is there any wisdom in that? Does it start to perk up? Is there any information that? It doesn't act as well as a Marriott or Hilton or a Hyatt. And yet it acts much better than a lot of other stocks relative strength to the market. Pair of twos, not particularly bearish or bullish, fair money where it is. Yeah, no, I listen, and this is one I think that, you know, valuation is probably okay. I'll bet you the fundamentals are okay here. And if it was like a quarter that's not good enough for the guidance and you see the stock, you know, kind of trending a bit lower back towards those March lows, I mean, this thing probably has some support down and around that kind of 160 level, which is probably, you know, 10% lower or so here. All right, listen, before we get out of here, Carter, I just want to give our viewers, we've gotten a lot of questions since you started joining us at the start of the year on Market Call here. And the Monday episode of Market Call is focused on charts. And we have the benefit of you sharing your work with us. Well, you just launched Worth Charting. And what I think is really interesting here is that, you know, I've known you since you were covering institutional accounts, talking to some of the biggest, you know, like money management firms in the world. And now you've been, you know, for years, you've been talking about your charts on CNBC and iterating on them. But now you have a product. It's called Worth Charting here. And it's not just for financial institutions, but it's also for individuals. Talk to us a little bit about this. Again, Guy and I get it every day and we love it. It, it. it stimulates a lot of great ideas for us from a trading standpoint, but also from an investing standpoint. What's going on over here at Worth Charting, bud? Yeah, we launched the site a week ago, Friday, and 
essentially, I would summarize it as follows. For 30, 31 years, I have been technical analyst on Wall Street with institutional clients, the biggest mutual funds that you can think of in your mind and hedge funds, all of them. And I still talk to them. They are clients. But what this offering now is for individuals and also professionals who might not have a relationship with worth charting from their firm, where you can subscribe and get content from me based on, of course, charts and charts alone. I think it's differentiating in the sense that there are a lot of subscription services and some of them are excellent. And there are a lot of sell-side professional technical analysts working for big firms. But I don't think there's any product that is put out by someone who is still talking to all those big institutions, but is making ideas available to individuals. Yeah, well, I love it, man. I couldn't do what I do without it. And, you, you know, the one area you're forgetting is some of the best market pundits that you also speak to on a daily basis. All right. <laughs> well, that was Market Call, man. We really appreciate you stepping in for Guy. And we're really hoping, you know, with your increased workflow from we're charting that maybe you'll pop on a bit more with us, Carter. Thank you very much, man, for joining us. Once again, thanks to our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Guy and I will be back here tomorrow at 1 p.m. So we'll see you then. And thanks for tuning in.